folks, welcome to the HeMind Pulse, the podcast that is focused on all things hematology, 100%, 200%, 300% hematology. I am your host, Shadi Nabhan. I'm a hematologist and a medical oncologist, and I appreciate you tuning in for the HeMind Pulse, the podcast that allows you to keep your fingers on the pulse of all things hematology day in and day out. And today, I have the pleasure of hosting Dr. Michael Bishop, a colleague and a scholar. I had the opportunity of working with Dr. Bishop when I was at the University of Chicago as a faculty member. Michael Bishop is a professor of medicine at the University of Chicago. He is the director of the Hematopoietic Stem Cell and Transplantation Program. What I have tasked uh, Michael in addressing pretty much is the updates from ASH on what was presented in terms of cellular therapy. Without further ado, Dr. Michael Bishop, exclusively on the Hemonc Pulse. Let's introduce you to listeners who are really tuning in to learn about you and about cellular therapy, a little bit about you and what you do and what got you to where you are right now. Wow. Well, thank you very much. This is, uh, this is actually, I look, was looking forward to this as well. I, my name is Michael Bishop and, uh, I am a director of the David and Etta Jonas center for cellular therapy at the university of Chicago. Um, and oversee uh, uh, the entire cell therapy program and have, I don't know how I got here. It's, it's, it's been an arduous and strange journey, as they say, um, but um, it has been fun over the past uh, 10 to 15 years to see uh, cellular therapy actually come forward. And, and as you said, it's a very exciting time, for, particularly for patients. Uh, I think it's getting more confusing for physicians what to do with all these therapies, but uh, but a very exciting time for patients. Michael, um, I, I've been really amazed to see what you have done uh, personally and regionally for cellular therapy at the University of Chicago, but um, that's probably for another podcast. Today, we want to really focus a little bit about, you know, what struck you at the ASH meeting that we just attended. I have a disclaimer that last year when we were at ASH 2021, there were so much about cellular therapy with three trials, the Belinda and the Zuma and all of these. Um, so, So I admit, I don't know whether we had this year similar impact to what was really presented last year. But take us what struck you in terms of things that were really interesting um, and really left uh, an impression uh, on you. Oh, all right. Sure. You know, and I, I, I'm actually in agreement with you. I, I, I don't think we had like the wow factor at ASH this year in terms of cell therapy. But, but it, if you look at all the sessions, I mean, they just, there was a predominance of CAR uh, trials and but what was, what, what kind of struck me is filling in the gaps of of what's going on. Uh, you know, trying you know instead of just the, here's the here's the clinical trials, there were a lot of things on trying to understand why CAR T cells don't work, and understanding what patient identifying patients for for whom they don't work and how do we overcome 
mechanisms of resistance. And I actually think that's extremely important because it's very frustrating to me because theoretically, you know, CAR T cells should work for everyone. You know, I mean, if you're targeting CD19, like particularly let's talk about um, an area that you love is lymphoma. I mean, if you're expressing CD19 um, and it should, if it hits CD19, why isn't it killing that target? And I think that we're we're understanding that it's it's not quite as simple. That there's multiple factors involved, including there's di- there is there is biology underlying the lymphoma cells, and we saw we're seeing next generation sequencing identifying subsets of diffuse large B cell lymphoma that is completely different, that it's not responding. Um, we're seeing beautiful work about, it's just not that you have CD19, but it's the amount of CD19 on the surface of the cell. Um, we're understanding about T cell dysfunction and the, the inability uh, to proliferate enough or even a proliferate the sufficiently and and expand enough. And then another area, and it's an interest uh, among my colleagues here at the University of Chicago, is just the the microenvironment that supports lymphoma. And I think we're, you know we're seeing this not only in lymphoma, but we're also seeing it in in acute lymphoblastic leukemia, and we're seeing it in multiple myeloma across the board here. And so uh, th- those. That, that identification of why CAR T cells don't work is, I think, extremely, extremely important. And it was very exciting to me to see how much interest there was in trying to understand that. Are you, are you seeing in the field that this understanding is leading to almost like a treatment algorithm where if you see certain factors, you say, you know what? maybe I shouldn't really do CAR-T at this point and save a lot of cost on other things, or are we not there yet? Well, that's a great question. And I I, I don't think we're there yet because, and I, I kind of look at it, it's not like it. They, there's a group where we can absolutely say that, that they won't work, but I think we're trying to identify earlier. I mean, even people now, I, I think I was kind of, I thought was kind of cool is actually looking at the function of T cells before you start uh, harvesting them and trying to generate product. I think that's a great idea. Being able to identify that very, very early would be, uh, and maybe even doing something to manipulate the cells and people are, are looking at that as well. Um, there's still, I mean, when you look at, we can break it down, let's just say for simplicity's sake, into quartiles of patients who are going to do, we can predict are going to do really, really well. Patients are going to do pretty well. Patients may going to do fair, and then there's going to be patients do poorly, but we really can identify, well, this is a complete waste of time. But, but as you kind of suggested, um, that would potential, that's where we hope to go. But more importantly, let's, let's, once we identify that patients be before we take them forward, are what can we do things to try to help them? And you know, is it that we can target that we can enhance their up upregulation of their um, of the antigen? Can we affect the tumor microenvironment? Um, and more importantly, I think where the great biggest bang for the buck is can we identify portions of the 
the T cells themselves are the T cell product. And, and again, there's been a bunch of papers just been recently published. And I'll give I'll give a shout out to the Mackle Laboratory at Stanford, who's trying to understand the mechanisms, exact mechanisms that are important for, for T cell function. And and so her laboratory is it's just got a number of re researchers who are trying to look at that and 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 have identified specific pathways that are targetable uh, for for us to improve T cell function and that's what I think we're going to see over the next five to ten years is going to be the next step to getting us because you you notice all the CAR T cell products are essentially the same so how do we get above this 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 hump of of only less than 50% of patients benefiting from it. So that's that's what I'm hoping we're going to see in the future. You know, one of the things that um, oftentimes um, gets talked about a lot, um, which may be a reasonable segue to what you mentioned, is that to to manufacture the construct, the car, uh, the car, and by the time it comes back, it may take several weeks. I mean, depends, obviously, give and take. And the community oncologists and the treating physicians and patients get always very nervous that this time that lapses, the lymphoma could go crazy. And I've heard two schools of thought, so I'd like you to reflect on that and tell me how you handle this in practice. One school of thought says, if the cancer was going to get that much worse in such a short period of time, no car was going to really make a difference. And the other thought would say, that's actually not true. There are many examples that you give the car in time, you really can reverse course. How do you manage all of this? And, and do you see these concerns as things that we can really overcome? I think it's another important point. And it kind of goes back to the biology of the disease uh, and, and, and also the function of the T cells. But, you know, I could, you're probably, you know, this is... Uh, it's a semi-sore subject with me, uh, being the principal investigator for Belinda. Uh, we kind, you know, kind of, kind of saw that. You know, are are there patients who we just can't help, and 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 again for the various reasons. But, but you know, I think the thing that we took away from Belinda um, as compares to that is how long it took to get cells into a patient and. Um, and there is, there was a nice, there wasn't a abstract. And it kind of struck, struck my interest because they, they showed that, uh, that somebody looked at time from infusion of the CAR T cells from, from vein to in, infusion correlated with outcome. So what do we do about, what do we do about, is there, are there patients who they, that, you know, you could say that it's not, again, coming back, it's, it's not kind of not going to help and they and and wasting time and i do believe that, that if you if there's that much bulk of disease and you're only putting because a car t-cell has so many lives you know and i always give when i'm talking to patients i think about i go well if one car t-cell kills 10 can 10 cancer cell 10 cancer cells for example and so if you have 100 cancer cells and you put in 10 car t-cells it, it should take care of it now but if there's you but if there's 110 cancer cells and you put in that, then there's going to be 10 left 10 ca cancer cells. And that's kind of a little bit of the, I don't know if that's too simple an analogy, you know, relative to that, but that comes back to potency and it comes back to tumor bulk and tumor, tumor characteristics. So what do we, what do we do about that? But the, 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 the first thing is, is can we get, can we get cells in quicker? 
you know, and then a lot of people are looking at um, shorter incubation times and the shorter incubation times actually gives a more um, stem-like uh, phenotype. And we actually think that's very, very important. And, you know, one of the things that you, we saw at Ash this year is uh, this Novartis is this short incubation time and uh, they have this new YTB protocol, which is actually showing um, pretty pretty good results. And I, I think a number of, of uh, individuals uh, are looking at shorter incubation time for, for the CAR T cells. Now, another way to overcome that is allogeneic CAR T cells. And so we saw some of the allogeneic data. Um, we haven't quite seen the potency that we would uh, with... Um, some of the autologous cars, but that we appear to get getting better. And, uh, and, and so, you know, that was a, another thing of buzz that I was hearing. Have, have you, have you been a little bit, um, like four years ago, there was so much buzz about the allo car, right. <laughs> the allogeneic car. And I'm not going to lie. I was a little bit on the bandwagon. I was totally thinking that this is going to be really amazing. Uh, are we too soon to judge that it's not as good? Yeah, like, I've I been think we are. Yeah, no, we, we are. And to say, hey, I was on the same bandwagon, <laughs> and um, and and we've done a number of trials with allogeneic cars. I think it was. I think there was some a great degree of naivete about that. You know, um, you know, we're, we're going against millions of years of evolution of trying to protect ourselves from foreign antigens, and so even though you look at various people of doing knockouts of TCRs and beta-2 microglobulin and and protective mechanisms. It's been very, very difficult. It's taken massive amounts of lymphodepleting chemotherapy to get these able to persist just a, a long enough to to persist, to proliferate and do something. And now people are talking about, well, could we do multiple dosing uh, with the cars? The other other naive thing was that when you, you know, and I was hoping that, and I, that since we were taking normal donors, that you were going to take some really, really, you know, healthy T cells, that these T cells were going to do better. But the thing we're doing, we're going in and we're screwing up them you know it's like you have this perfect cell but we're going to hey we're going to genetically modify this and we're going to genetically modify that and i don't think they've been uh, clearly as potent and and as efficacious as we thought they would be and but that people are are finding that out and now um are now doing some genetic modifications and and additions to them that i you know we we see some of the uh, I don't mean to drop, but you know, like the allergene results are uh, are are actually a little bit more encouraging at this point right, in time. Right, and we still right. are seeing, you know, this. Uh, you know, we first saw the first, uh, I, and I just for full disclosure, I'm an investigator. The CRISPR trial um, for CRISPR therapeutics, and there what you know the ability there there. Uh, were quite a few complete res and complete responders, and which could be um, which could be durable. So you know we see these anecdotal reports, and so I, I think that we should still remain um, encouraged. And but I think it's going to be time. I just think that you know the grand slam that we thought we would see, but this idea that you would immediately have the availability of a cellular therapy product uh, that yeah. you could treat right away. Um, is still enticing. And yeah. uh, 
you know, the other thing about this is the point of care. You know, that's another that's another modality, you know, actually producing the cars on site. And again, we're starting to see some of the studies of this. And um, and again, uh, people investing in trying to do that um, at the site, you know, trying to cut off as much out of time, this shipping the product away, shipping the product back, having a cryo preserve. So these are some of the ways that we could overcome that and get the cells into the patient as quick as possible. And so uh, I'm, I'm excited by those prospects as well. Michael, last year, um, we talked about, you know, there was the Belinda, which is a trial, you were the PI on, there was the, um, I forgot the name, which Zuma, Trans which number? Yeah, there was Zoom, Zuma 7 and Zuma Transform. 7 and and Transform. there was a... So, so uh, all of these trials were attempting to address the issue that in relapse disease, relapse diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, should we offer autologous stem cell transplantation or do we offer CAR-T? Have you seen, and, and obviously there were some mixed results, which you can comment on, but uh, this year, anything in that realm, like now when you're dealing with relapse DLBCL, how are you approaching this now that we're a year out from these three presentations? Yeah, yeah. So there, you know, there were two updates. There wasn't an update from Belinda, but there was updates. I mean, um, we should so talk to for, the principal investigator of Belinda. Yeah, we should talk to the principal investigator. He's been slacking on the job. So, but for Zuma Seven, we had the long, we had a longer term follow up, and what we we um, saw there that the, the results are persistent and um, that there's still this um, separation of the curves in terms of progression-free progression, progression survival. What we were also seeing is they were trying to, again, coming back to our original point of discussion, is identify which group of patients did not do as well, you know, and a tumor uh, bulk assessment uh, with, with PET was actually... Uh, one of the things they looked at, and I think Fred Locke reported on on that. Uh, we also got updates from, you know, Transform when it was presented last year was actually very early results. Now it met its endpoint, which was um, event-free survival, but um, the 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 now we had the longer term, and I and I actually think the re and this was by Dr. Abraham. He uh, he. Uh, updated the results. Now we have some long-term follow-up on that. And we saw a separation of the progression-free survival curves, and they're pretty significant. Um, and that the overall survival curves, you know, we, we need longer follow-up in regard to that because patients could cross over to CAR T-cells. But again, you know, the question becomes, well, and it, it, I'm, I'm going a roundabout way is, you know, what about the patients who who go to autologous stem cell transplant, there's still, there's still a question of whether or not if you identify a patient who has chemosensitive disease, could they go to an autologous transplant and get benefit? Because both of the studies and even Belinda demonstrated a 20 to 25% uh, long-term uh, event-free survival with autologous transplant. And, and again, training about real world, people talk about, well, I don't want to, I don't want to, lose that opportunity. I, I mean, I, I I think I can still use CAR T cells uh, later and still salvage those. Now, uh, one of the questions, a couple of questions that were asked from Transform and from Zuma 7, is that really true? 
you know, if you take a patient with autologous stem cell transplant and then they relapse or, um, and then you take in the CAR T cell, yes, you can salvage a lot of them, but it seemed to indicate you're really, your best shot is trying to get CAR T cells as soon as possible. Uh, and I think those are the, those are the debates that we have among uh, ourselves as physicians who treat diffuse large B cell lymphoma, because, you know, what's happening is they're, they're relapsing the community. You can't necessarily wait. You need to treat them with something. And then what happens if you see these patients, you know, you give them a round of salvage and, and all of a sudden their lymphoma is all gone. You know, uh, what do you do with that patient? Do you take them to CAR T cells? Do you take them to, do you take them to an autologous stem cell transplant? So I still think this is an area of debate, but I, I do think things are leaning towards the, you know, the earlier use of CAR T cells, the better. Are you seeing a lot of people in the community using polatuzumab and BR as a salvage? And then is this really affecting your ability to, to collect cells or are you not it seeing? Does, I mean, it, it does have effect on, I mean, we're not, not as much as what you would think. Um, it does have, it does have an effect on trying to collect cells. It does affect cell quality, I think. Um, but it hasn't been a tremendous effect. The only, I'll, I'll just say that all of this, the thing that w we've seen and other people are seeing is community oncologists are identifying these patients earlier and getting them and referring them for CAR-T. I think that was really, I think that was actually kind of surprising because of the percentage of patients that we don't see for CAR-T cell therapy. But again, for this specific patient population, of primary refractory and which made up two thirds of in all three studies uh, and early relapses that that physicians are identifying them early and hey, giving a phone call and go hey is this a person I should be considering? So a lot of a lot of us who either used CAR T or heard of CAR T or had patients who received CAR T, one of the things that petrifies us the most is <laughs> toxicity. Uh, side right. effects and adverse events. And um, I think most of the listeners to this show are folks who are interested in hematology. So they probably have appreciation to the uh, cytokine release syndrome as well as neurotoxicity. Anything at this last ASH meeting that you've seen that addressed toxicity, whether it's managing toxicities, whether it's anything that you can tell listeners about? Yeah, um, well, I think there's a, been a lot I mean, I and and again, maybe I have a a, a per, you know, I'm got a skewed, I got a warped sense of what what things are. The toxicities have become significantly better managed as we've experienced over time. I mean, if you look even in the wor real world experience with CAR T cells and look at the incidence of of grade three. Um, CRS and grade three neurotoxicities are far less than what you would have seen in, in the early uh, studies like Juliet and Transcend and Zuma One. Um, and again, where we had this just innate fear of using corticosteroids. And so now with, with greater experience, um, the earlier introduction, uh, the first sign of tocilizumab, and um, and when tocilizumab is not working right away of adding steroids has really mitigated the, the severe 
toxicities that we see. I mean, it's very rare now in a patient at our institution, they would end up in the medical intensive care unit. And I can remember when I was first consenting these patients and actually taking care of them, particularly acute lymphoblastic leukemia, I would say, you know, you have a 25 to 30% chance of, of ending up in the medical intensive care unit. So coming to your point, you know, the, the, the percentage of patients who are being done as an outpatient continues to increase. And that's because of a degree in comfort in the management of this. And so we, we really don't have any amazing new drugs. I mean, people are looking at, at various things to try to mitigate specific cytokines, but it's just been grown with experience that we now, you know, we really live in the CRS uh, and neurotox to grade one, grade two. And 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 almost in all cases, it's reversible. So I don't really don't think that the toxicity is as big as issue as it has been in the past. Yeah. The other thing, uh, Michael, that uh, then, you know, lymphoma specialists like yourself uh, always uh, worry about is primary CNS lymphoma or recurrent lymphoma into the CNS. Um, I still think, and maybe I'm biased, I think primary CNS lymphoma might be easier managed uh, than recurrent CNS lymphoma into the into the, the CNS. But, um, uh, you know, what's are CARs uh, reasonable for these two entities? Have you been uh, seeing anything like that? Yeah, no, it's a great question too. And, you know, there's actually bits of studies people are actually looking at, at uh, using CAR T-cells specifically, um, it, now with primary CNS lymphoma, but also with secondary CNS lymphoma. And we do know that CAR, I mean, remember I have this debate all the time is, is um, you know, there's a, there's two concerns over that. Is, are, is it efficacious? That's a, probably the most important thing. And that number two, if, if it is efficacious, if you have somebody with uh, active, um, CNS involvement, uh, be it in the, be it in the white matter, be it in the CSF, are you going to have increased toxicities? And, and kind of the answer to this, to the first thing is, can it be efficacious? The answer is yes, that they do cross the blood brain barrier. And so you can see circulating CAR T cells, uh, in this, in the, in, in the CSF. And number two is in those patients who, have active CNS disease, um, we haven't seen necessarily an increase in neurotoxicity. Um, you're not, you know, it, you would think that the activation of the CAR T cells in there is going to be going to, going to be worse, but we we really haven't found that to be the situation situation. And so, you know, if you look at the real world experience, there's a certain percentage of patients of of you know five to ten percent who have CNS involvement. And um, it's been found that those patients can derive benefit. You know, is enough, are enough CAR T cells getting in there? That's a great, great question that we don't have the answer to yet. Um, but people would not look at that as an exclusion criteria in the real world. Uh, and it's trying, it's been starting to be investigated in a more formal manner. I guess my last question before I have you decide what else you want to share with listeners is um, other histologies where you've seen CAR T promising. And, you know, I mean, we, we've we seen some data, obviously, on follicular here and there, transformed disease. And, and I think it's at least my honest assessment um, today is I feel 
it's mixed. I'm, I haven't been able. I feel it's different when it when I when I talk about ALL, DLBCL, or even mantle cell. As you look at um, CAR Ts in the indolent lymphomas, I find it a little bit hard to go with very aggressive therapy like CAR T in something like a follicular or a Waldenstrom's or things like that. But but that may be a bias, uh, although I've seen these studies. So how do you how do you approach uh, these? And my other question is, you comment on it in at the University of Chicago in your in your uh, as you're responsible for cellular therapy. I know your lymphoma is your first love, uh, but uh, are you also like for CAR T in myeloma in the non lymph you know in the non DLBCL? Are you treating those? Do the myeloma folks treat those? How are you able to handle the logistics now that CAR T is becoming? I mean, you know, there's solid tumors they're talking about CAR-T like do you feel all of this is going to come to this program or do you envision different people based how do you think the operations will, will, will work you know my problem is I I, I find all can cancers interesting um you know like you said lymphoma is my first love but I'm also um um involved in in multiple myeloma and and uh, was principal investigator uh, at our institution for our Celex's trial, which again, really remarkable results. I mean, they had a hundred percent response rate with, with, uh, MRD negativity and 95% of patients. And when you see studies like that, you get, you get really, really excited. I mean, we have a fully integrated, uh, where we have cell therapists embedded in each program. So it's not a, there is not a turf war, um, you know, so we within each lymphoma program, we have people identified as cell therapists within the lymphoma program, cell therapist within the myeloma program, and cell therapist embedded within uh, leukemia program. So that and and again, there it's a fully inter, fully integrated within the, within the cell cell therapy program. So it's not it's not a it's not a it's not a huge issue at our at our institution i i do agree you know with, but just coming back to what you're talking about lymphoma so you know the results with follicular lymphoma uh, with car t cells are pretty impressive and again trying to you can identify those high-risk patients as you're you're well aware you know the thing the topic that we haven't talked about is the results with bites and you know in particular you see the results with bites in follicular lymphoma and they're they're pretty impressive. And in diffuse large B cell lymphoma, you have a harder time convincing me. Um, I, I mean, I love the results. I love the glyphenamab data and, and everything. But, you know, it's still 30% of patients achieved a complete response. That's not near as high as what you see with, with CAR T cells. And yes, you can see some durable responses. But I, I, I think that's the battle. You know, with follicular lymphoma, you know, you see the results with bites and and they're pretty impressive too. Really high response rates, and really, you know, with uh, mono, you see, uh, you know, that that sixty percent complete response rate, and three quarters of them are durable. You know, I, but it's also meaning going on and and doing months of therapy. I mean, even if you have limited set treatment with a bite, you know, some of them. Uh, uh, they, they're continuous and, you know, and then glyphenamab, you know, they're set dosing. I, I like that, 
that that's another thing you know is there like, oh, is there an optimal sequence right now can you do no see that's where i say that could be that's a podcast within itself <laughs> or just a, that's a that's actually a, a symposium of what do we how do we sequence these you know what are the effects uh you know and i'll come back you know i'll tell you i i one abstract that really struck me um and which i thought was really really important it was the real world use of a BACMA. And they compared it to patients who got anti-BCMA therapy. Uh, they, they looked at patients who received a BECMA for multiple myeloma. And they broke it into patients who had seen prior BCMA therapy, which made up about 30% of patients, 30 to 35%, and those who did not. And then they broke up those who had received BCMA therapy, whether it was within six months or greater than six months of receiving a BECMA. And the results in terms of progression-free survival and overall responses. So if you look at CR, very good PR, PR, it was significantly worse for the patients who got uh, prior BCMA therapy and particularly those patients who got um, anti-BCMA therapy within six months of receiving a BECMA. And I think that's, and, and I don't know if it's analogous across a CD19 car, or if even it's a CD19 car, if you look at ALL and diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, but I think it's really, really, I think these, these kind of studies are important just for what you're talking about. How do we sequence, you know, and should, you know, with, with bites. And again, most of the, you know, again, in lymphoma, you know, that the, you know, most of the bites are CD20. That's a good deal, right? So, you know, could we sequence those and, and not lose anything because we're, you, because we're do most of them are going to be CD19 based cars, but you know, what do you do with a CD19 based bite? And, and what does that do to T cell function? You know, did you already exhaust all the, all those good T cells or really does it, doesn't matter um, with a CD20 car. I don't know. You know, I think these are the important things that we're going to have to study. And I, and again, it's kind of like multiple myeloma. We have more studies and questions than we do patients. So I, I, it's going to be difficult to answer these questions, but I think they will be addressed. It's going to be a reason why we have future ASH meetings. Michael, right. before I let you go, any other thoughts? I mean, I, it's impossible to cover everything in one. This was such an enjoyable chat in terms of just the high-level things that we look forward to. Anything else that you'd like to uh, share with listeners? No, you know, I, I think, you know, the, the question is, is, you know, what do we do about all the other dis hematologic diseases? There's good targets. And, you, you know, you brought up a couple of things. Um you know, why, you know, why don't they work better in CLL? And we can, and, and then the other thing is that, you know, when we talk about follicular lymphoma, why don't they work in marginal zone? You know, uh, I mean, these, these are really important questions and, and I, and I think people are starting to address them and there's going to be ways to come over. I think, I think, uh, you know, and, and where are we going to use this in, in the course of therapy? But, the, I, I guess that's my final thoughts. So these are the things that keep me awake at night. Um, but I keep, I keep thinking, man, patients have a lot of really, really good options now that they didn't have 20 years ago or even 10 years ago. So um, it's something to look forward to. Hey, the fact that we are debating sequencing bites and CAR-T 
it's not that conversation was not even on the radar right. six seven it years even ago. Even comprehensible five years ago. It's yeah. it's it's amazing, but keep doing the amazing work you're doing. I look forward to seeing you in 2023 and uh, hopefully uh, getting together. Yeah, thank you so much. This was fun, um, and take care, everyone.